Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moore. So this week on the podcast, we have the brilliant Angus Og McAnally. Angus is an actor, a director, a producer, a theatre maker. He does it all. He's a gentleman as well, as you're going to hear over the course of this chat. And he's also a fellow podcaster with the brilliant Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. Uh, on stage, I've seen Angus in loads of stuff, so I could go through it for ages. But just having a quick glance at the CV, I mean, he's been at the Abbey tons with Big Love, The Burial of Thebes, uh, Romeo and Juliet and The Play on the Stars, which also turned to the UK. Um, and I mean, with Rise Productions, which is his own company, he was in the kind of infamous fight night at this point uh, I most recently saw their production of The Good Father uh, with Liam Heslin and Rachel O'Byrne I mean the, the work is just um, the, the, it, it comes in spades I also saw Fight Night uh, I've seen what was it The Games People Play um, by the brilliant Gavin Costick as well and Lorna Quinn so I mean look he, he, he's all over the place uh, if you haven't seen it make sure you do and um, there's going to be loads of brilliant work coming up at Rise in the new year and make sure you go and check that out uh, in other news um, as you know I was away doing a little bit of Travelling, which was great crack, had a great time. Um, unfortunately, got some sad news while I was away, and my lovely Granny Maureen passed away. Um, so I obviously um, cut the trip uh, short the minute I heard and got back to be with my family. It was obviously a difficult um, few days and everything because I was lucky enough to get to care for um, lovely Granny uh, over the kind of last. Um, three years of her life since Grandad passed which was such an honour and a privilege I suppose now with a bit of hindsight um, that you know um, you know, that was kind of the, the only time that we would get to spend with her so it was so lovely to kind of get those sleepovers and have those chats and um, just yeah really get to um, see your granny kind of become your friend I suppose which is what happened over the last three years of her life so that was a tough goodbye but um, you know glad to be back now and into a bit of routine back in Dublin so uh, thanks for bearing with me while we were away I know some of the introductions were like you know being done on trains and stuff like that but uh, fair play to you for um, sticking with us uh, other than that yeah just back doing some um, writing and um, kind of some really 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 exciting things in the pipeline uh, all going well so I'm very excited it might be a while before I can talk about it a little bit more but I'm kind of keeping the schedule free for that reason um, so hopefully uh, I'll have some good news uh, to tell you about over the coming uh, months but uh, other than that yeah please enjoy the wonderful Angus Og McAnally playing Personality Bingo with Tom Angus Og McAnally, ready to play Personality Bingo? Ready as I'll ever be. All right, sweet, amazing. So I'm going to give a quick explanation of how it all works. Uh, I've got 60 minutes on the clock here. Uh, I've got 60 questions here, and I've got 60 balls that correspond to the questions. I've also given you five numbers there. Would you do me a favour and read out the five? Yes, my numbers are number two, number five, 44, 58, and 39. Excellent. And would you do me a favour and pick a sixth number, something between one and 60 that's not already there? I am going for number eight because it is the greatest number of all time. Oh, you'll have to give some background on that. Um, I, It's always been my favourite number. I think having a favourite number is a weird thing, but it's like that's the thing you do when you're a kid. Mm. And I turned eight in 1988 and I felt that made eight the greatest number of all time. But weirdly, often on albums, the eighth track will be my favourite song on the album. Really? Yeah. Like, like more often than not, which is a bit strange. I don't know if that's chicken and egg, and I go, ah, yes, this eighth song is really quite a masterpiece. Or if actually just worked out that way. But um, yeah, I like the number eight, so we're yeah. going to go with that. I was a big fan of the eight times tables. Were you indeed? My favourite set of tables, dare I say. Um, I, I didn't have a hierarchy in my favourites of tables. They were all equally 
dull. But um, listen, if that's what gets you through the night, man, I'm delighted for you. Well, that's it. You've got an insight into my, my inner workings. Uh, I should also say that if all six of those numbers do come out, that means the tables are turned and you can ask me any question in the whole wide world. I'll give you a totally honest answer. I love it. I'm going for monoslavic answers for the entire thing. I just want as many chances as possible to knock off these six. I, I accept your challenge. This, this could be a very dull interview. Yeah. All right. Here we go. One, two, three. All right, first out the gate, we have number 46. Do you have it? I have 44, but that's not the same, is it? It's just not. Um, number 46, oh, we're going right in there. Do you believe in an afterlife? No, I don't. Mm. Um, I used to. Okay. Uh, I used to an awful lot, yeah. Um, no, I, I, so I'm, like, weird. I was pretty goddamn religious as a kid. Mm. I guess, it, like... Ireland in the 1980s was 96% white Irish Catholic. So it's no great, you know, thing to say, hey, I was quite religious in the 80s. But it was, because that's the way you're brought up. But, like, as an 11 and 12-year-old, I was singing in the church choir, all that stuff. Then, as a teenager, you drift away, because, hey, I'm a teenager now, so you have to drift away. But then I came back to it as a grown-up. And this is really weird to me, because now I would describe myself as a fairly militant atheist. Uh, but... I went in my early twenties, like when I was in drama school, I went back to the church and went back to like reading in church because it was this thing where I don't know for whatever reason I felt some kind of connection to it again, mm. and I felt that the people reading at mass were shite. And am I allowed to say bad words? Yeah, of course. Okay, grand. Uh, I felt the people reading were shite, and I felt that you know if there's this is the one thing I contribute to the mass because mm. you know I was studying drama, acting, training, and all that stuff. I'm going look, okay, I can go and do this. So I went back and began reading in church. Um, and was like actively involved in it and everything and then one day and I'll never forget it one day I was up on the altar because my, my deal with it was in the way that you know the, the rest of the mammies of Port Marnock were looking at their kids going now look at Angus McAnally up there reading on the altar the very least you can do is get your ass down to the mass and just sit there and listen uh, and so I was being a great example for the community but then I was up at the altar one day doing one of the readings and um, there's a bit of hoo-ha about this at the moment actually Maybe it was in Australia. And so they're looking for a ban on kind of religious stuff on TV mm. because it's, I think it might be Ephesians, but I don't know. My Bible studies are like non-existent. Sure. But it's that whole passage where the teaching is, you know, wives, be subordinate to your husbands. And I was very aware in that moment of standing up as a, you know, a pillar of the community in front of my community saying, wives, be subordinate to your husbands. Well, I can't stand over that. That's ridiculous. A, because my wife, who was then my girlfriend, is a senior A camogie player and she'll beat the shit out of me with a hurl. Yeah. Um, and also, I just, I fundamentally don't believe it. And that was a real moment for me. Like, when you start pulling a thread on a jumper and the entire jumper unravels, I was going, well, hang on a second. This is clearly horseshit. I went, hang on a second. If that bit's horseshit, then what else might be? And I pulled at the thread and the whole thing unraveled. And as I said, kind of from there... Like, just full-on atheist, hardcore, no, it's all a load of shite, mm. basically. Which is, like, a weird thing to get that, like, to get into your 20s. Like, you're a grown-up then. But I guess I guess that's a testament to the power of how people get indoctrinated into organised religion or cults or anything else you want to, you know, even kind of, you know, systems of, like, racist belief. Like, if, you, if you're raised that way and it's just presented as an absolute... I guess it's easy to not question it, mm. particularly if everyone around you feels feels the same way. And and from that unraveling that occurred over those whatever it was months or years or whatever, has anything is anything are there remnants left that that have stuck or what did it all go? No, it's all gone. Mm. Um, and I know some people would think that would be quite sad. And they go, oh no, but like this, you know, you can't get away from the good parts of it. And you go, well, 
sure, there are there are good parts to organised religion. Listen, the essential message of Christianity of like, you know, don't be a dick mm-hmm. is a really good message. If you can go through life not doing any harm to people, that's brilliant. But I just don't feel you need either the threat of eternal damnation or this beacon of hope in a messiah-like figure to make you do that. Just do that because you're a good person. Right. Um, and it's funny, around the whole, around the Pope visit recently, and there was an awful lot of people who kind of come out going, yeah, look, it's easy to be cynical about this, but there's an awful lot of good in religion. You go, sure there is. Like, yes, religion has been responsible for an awful lot of good things in the world, mm-hmm. but it has also, particularly within Catholicism, has been responsible for untold horrors. Like, if you think about the state-sponsored systemic rape of young children that happened in this country, and that's not, like, that's just what it is. Call it what it is. Um... Like, it's so how that, for me, just you throw that in the scales, it completely outweighs it. And it's like that thing if you go, yeah, but, you know, it's real. my Auntie Mary gets so much of it and she goes to Mass every Sunday and that's, you know, really useful community thing. Okay, right, grand, right? But if your Uncle John went to an illegal dog fighting ring every Sunday and that was his outlet and that was his community, got to meet people, well, cool, I'm glad for Uncle John that he gets to see his pals and have a pint. Maybe do it without the murder and dogs. And equally, I would feel... You know, maybe you don't need to be abusing kids at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's bonkers. My grandmother passed away last week, okay? and Okay. Yeah, no, no, it, it's completely fine. But just in the scale of things, I, I felt like I really got to see the two extremes. Yeah. Because on one hand, like... The comfort that, and you know, she like she was ninety one years old, so she comes from a different generation, and you kind of need to look at that through the lens of time. Yeah. And, and you know, she like she would be not that she would be blind to the bad that the church has done, but to her, it was just the institution. It was her everything. So like you know, and in her last you know few de- like all she wanted in the, in the last few weeks was like I just need confession. Right. I just need confession. I just need confession. My granddad passed away about two and a half years ago, and like she was never the same after. And she just needed her confession. She got it on the Monday, and she literally passed away that night yeah. like you know and, and the doctors didn't even think like she was like they thought she had another month they knew she was dying yeah. but like she was just hanging on because she was terrified to die without confession and Angus when I tell you this is like an old frail woman who never mind like committing sins like she didn't leave her chair do you know what I mean yeah. like as in and it was just so unbelievable to see the hold and the fear that she lived with and she's a doe of a woman and a gorgeous person and you know like anyone I'm sure she had her dark thoughts and did dark things in her life I'm sure but like whatever she did in comparison in the world like I mean she was she'd be like in the 1% I'd have to imagine of like reasonable human beings you know what I mean and just the fear and you're like fuck the grip that it had over that generation is just other level I can't understand that yeah it's pretty scary it is pretty scary I like I feel like we're getting out the far side of that now um like personally I would love to see a complete separation of church and state listen religion is fine if you want to be religious lash away mm. like whoever that like whatever you want to do whatever you want to believe in fire ahead um, but in terms of its connection like its place in the constitution and stuff drives me demented its place in schools is particularly problematic um, hospitals as well I mean the obvious th- those are obvious points I mean and if I've never seen any example anywhere on the planet where a separation of church and state has been a bad thing mm. Um, in terms of you having young ki- children, how have you <laughs> navigated it? Is it a point of contention? or uh, It was and now it's not. It's really interesting. So my wife is a primary school teacher. Oh. And as you know, the vast majority of schools in the country are, are Catholic schools, she teaches in a Catholic school and so has to have a special cert to say that she's able to teach in a Catholic school and all that. Um, and we, so I have two kids and one is in school, one's not. And so our eldest is in a Catholic school. It's the local school. It's a five minute walk 
funnily enough, it's the school that both myself and Louise went to. Okay. Um, so there's pictures of four-year-old me and four-year-old Louise on the wall as you walk in. Right. My teacher from second class is the principal of the school. Now, it's very, very strange. Mm. But it's a Catholic school. Uh, and we knew what we were doing when we did that. And also, kind of at Louise's insistence, and also because it made sense at the time, because Kyla's now eight, we did have her christened back mm. in the day, not because we were practicing Catholics, but because of access to schools. And the idea that you can uh, that you can have a system that forces non-practicing people to go through the charade of a, of a baptism like that is kind of mental. If you're that desperate to be clinging on to numbers, maybe look at yourself and ask what you're doing wrong. Um, so, so we did. We had her baptized, got her into the school. Uh, but so, la- so this year just gone was communion, and uh, and I said to her because God is pretty smart. I said, look, here's the deal. Um, communion is for people who believe in God. You don't like we're not raising her Catholic, and she's been she's really engaged. Like around the time, so she, I guess she was five for the marriage referendum. Mm. She's like, I'm like, this is ridiculous. You just love who you love. Marriage is about love, and it should be that. Like if two guys want to get married, let them get married. If two girls, like, funny enough, at the same time, not long after the referendum, she come, came up to me, actually quite concerned, and needed to get something off her chest. And so she said, Dad, I'm like, yeah. She goes, Can I tell you something? I'm like, Yeah, absolutely, whatever. She goes. I think I might just be straight. <laughs> like, my five-year-old is coming out to me as straight. This yeah. is fantastic. I was going, well, that's fine, Kyla. Don't you worry. Me and your mom will love you no matter what. <laughs> and it was just this brilliant moment like that that yeah. we've now got to a realm where that's kind of, you know, that's where it is. Uh, so, yes, when it came to community, I said, look, here's the deal. You know, what do you, what do you think about it? She goes, well, if I don't believe in God, then I'm not doing it. I was going, now you know. All your friends are going to get a princess dress and a whole shit ton of money. She's going, yeah, I still don't want to do it. I was going, man, you are a smart seven-year-old. Um, so we didn't do it. Now, we were down in the church for her to you know, to see all her friends. They were going to celebrate the day with them sure. in the way that if you had a Muslim friend, they would come to your wedding in a church and go, hey, let's celebrate your day. Yeah. Um, but I was convinced that Louise would push for her to do the communion just because I guess that's how I thought she felt. But about a year or two ago, kind of in the aftermath of the Tulum stuff, uh, Louise really it just it, it broke her she just went no that's it I'm done mm. I can't stand over it when when you have 800 babies in a septic tank it you know it, that, it, that's a game changer yeah. uh, and she just went there's, there's no there's nothing left in this that I can stand over or just the, the negatives outweigh the positives so fully that she had like yeah gone so she didn't do the, didn't do the communion and there was, obviously so Emer's my youngest who's now pushing two and a half and there's been no baptism there and there won't be. Mm, yeah. It's amazing even in those few years. Yeah, oh, it is, yeah. You know, it is. And, and again, that's that's the weird thing about my life. I mean, I'm still relatively young. I'm 37. Mm. But in my, like, kind of in in my lifetime, not just in my lifetime, but in the time where I would have been starting kissing girls, if I had not been into girls and been into fellas, it would have been illegal for me. Like, mm. like decriminalisation of homosexuality happened within my lifetime. I, like, I remember... I remember the first Playboys appearing on top shelves. I remember the hoo-ha about the Virgin Megastore selling condoms. Um, I remember the divorce referendum. The idea that there's been that much social change in, I guess you're talking about a span of 30 years. It's been kind of seismic. Now, it's only because we were as backward as we were for as long as we were, unfortunately. Um, But it's been a huge shift. uh, And I think exclusively for the better. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's but it's wild. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of amazing. Right, if you give it a spin. What happened to my monosyllabic I answers? Know, this is dreadful. I know, I know. You better pull out my numbers. Everyone thinks they're different. They're not. <laughs>
Uh, it's number 47. Do you have it? At 44, I told yeah, I you. I know, I know. All right, number 47. What do you think people's first impressions of you are? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it's a tough one. Uh, like, I try and be outgoing and friendly because I think I am mm-hmm. outgoing and friendly. I think it's a little much for some people. I think I'm, I can be a little full on. Uh, in those initial meetings, going, wow, this dude's pretty familiar. Okay. I also have a thing where I insist on calling people by nicknames, not their nicknames, just nicknames that I designate for them, um, that no one else uses for them. <laughs> so I refer to these, like, you know, going, like, so, like, like simply Anna Shields McNamee, lovely actress, yeah. um, wonderful performer. I call her Derry. Uh, no one else in the world calls her Derry, but I do because she's from Derry. Um, and I just I assign these nicknames to people and get like really old, like so for example, like Gavin Costick, who's a, a guy I've worked with an awful lot um, over the years. I call him Gavo. No one else calls him Gavo, but I've just decided that that's what I'm going to call him. Now, if someone did that to me, I'd find it really obnoxious. But I just do it to people because maybe I'm obnoxious. I don't know. But yeah, I worry about the first impression thing because I'm I can be a little full on, a little bit early, and it's I guess it's coming from a good place in my head. Uh, in that I'm trying to put people at ease and go, hey, we can be friends. This is all great. It's a lot to deal with, though, sometimes. Like, you get a lot of me coming at you. Yeah, but it doesn't feel disingenuous because we wouldn't know each other very well. No, at not all. particularly but, well. But, um, but I wouldn't, it would never feel disingenuous. And I think it's always a good test. And, like, you know, even if you listen to, like, for example, your podcast, or if you listen to my podcast, you know, you try... I'm, I'm not saying that I'm like this and speak in this tone over all the time, but you try and give, you know, as real a sense of yourself as you can. Sure. And it's also really funny what you said about the nickname thing because when I went to message you about doing it, I was like... Because, you know, I was like, people call you Engo. Yes. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And then I was like... Fuck, I don't even know how to spell that. <laughs> like, how do you spell that? Is it? Oh, this is a thing now. Okay, let's right. talk about this. I have close mates, really close mates who I love. Yeah. And they put a H in the angle. Don't put a H in the angle. There's not, that is a redundant H, okay? <laughs> like, it's A-O-N-G-O, end of story. That's angle. I'm kind of amazed that people refer to me as angle as much as they do. Like, I get business emails addressed to angle. I'm going, have I really created this persona out there of Ango yeah. um, that people feel that that's who you talk to? I don't know. Because again, because I'm not Angus. So, okay, I'm Angus Og McAnally, but I'm not Angus Og McAnally. I'm just Angus McAnally, but because my dad is my dad, mm. uh, in equity, I couldn't be Angus McAnally. So I had to be someone. So we toyed around with a couple of different names at the time, up to and including, I'm so glad this didn't happen. So my middle name is Raymond, after my granddad, three-time BAFTA winner, Ray McAnally. Yeah. I'm going, oh, well, he's dead now. I could just be Ray McAnally again. And they went, no, no, you can't. Yeah. Please don't do that. Like, imagine, because I was 15 when I started working. Imagine a 15-year-old kid rocking up on films and going, hi, I'm the new Ray McAnally. You're welcome. Yeah. Like, that would not have been a good look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but no, the Angle thing. I like being called Angle. Here's one for you, though. Mm. My mom insists on calling me Angie, and I can't fucking stand it. And every time I tell her to not do it, I feel like a dick for giving it out to my mom. But also, she just clearly doesn't listen, and I'm 37 now, she's not going to change. Yeah. It drives me demented because then you get other people who she, but she like, so you'd be like open night in Abbey. And, uh, and my mum would be there. She'd go, oh, and, and this is Angie. I'm going, please, I beg you not to introduce me to people in the industry as Angie. Or please don't introduce yourself as Angie's mom because you're killing me and my career. And it's hurting my soul. Please stop. Yeah. But you can totally call me Angle. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much. Which is, if you put that H in, I'll kill you. Well, exactly. You see, the whole interview could have been cancelled. <laughs> it was a close call. All right, here we go. Number 56. Do you I've have got 58. Oh. Like, we're very close each time. I'm just teasing you. All right. Um, uh, number 56. Uh, what's 58, the... 58. Oh, oh, no, no, I have 58. You have 56. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Sorry. Cool, cool. No, you're fine. Uh, <laughs> 
what's one thing that everyone likes that you don't like? Any unpopular opinions? The Wire. Oh yeah. Breaking Bad. Mm. Uh, I watched. So here, I watched four episodes of The Wire. Gave up. I watched all of Breaking Bad. I don't think it's the greatest TV show of all time. Um, what else? Music. <laughs> all music has been shite since Roy Orbison died. No. Um, no. Uh, going to festivals, maybe. Mm. I don't do the festival thing. I did Electric Picnic once because I was gigging at it. We did Fight Night there. Yeah. Uh, and I went down the night before, had a bottle of Coke Zero and watched Christy Moore and then drove home. Um because the idea of doing fight night with a hangover was not going to be a happy day at totally. the office. Um, but yeah, no, the festival thing, I can't get on board with it. I'm, I Just the idea of three days hungover with no showers and people shouting at you, I, it wouldn't be my cup of tea. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, I think the, I'm always like, the idea of it sounds great. Yeah. Like, when I think about it, because I never think about the practicalities of it, I don't, like, but all I have to do is think about the port losing Sunday and that's yeah. enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's where I am. It's like, I, uh, I've been, for some reason, I've been traveling a lot the last couple of months uh, for seeing shows. I did, I did New York, London and Edinburgh in pretty quick succession. Mm. And I'm just at a stage now where you're kind of going, like New York, and you're going, okay, flights and accommodation costs what it costs in Manhattan. You're going, well, technically, if I had got a place that like had a shared bathroom, I could save a couple of hundred quid. I, I'm like, a, per, a private bathroom, personal bathroom is worth a few hundred quid to me, even if it's only for two or three days. I don't care. That's money I'm spending. The idea of a Sunday portaloo out of a tent hung over to bits, I just, it's not for me. Because here's the thing I, I, I love drinking. Drinking mm. is tasty. Mm. I, like, I enjoy pints, I enjoy wine. I enjoy whiskey. I've yet to meet the drink I can't get on board with. Mm. But I've never done like a three-day rollover. Like I can't, I, that blow, the, the idea that one could do that blows my mind. Mm. I like, like if I'm going to go out and have a night out, cool, okay, go and have a big party night, get drunk, wake up hungover the next day. But that next day is a write-off. Like that's a hangover day. The idea of getting on it again and rolling over into a third day, no thank you. No thank you. Not yeah, for me. Yeah, I Maybe you. I'm just old though. <laughs> Did you find that? Do you find that uh, the hangovers get worse? Yes. That's the thing. Absolutely. Right. When I was 18 and playing minor football, we, like, I'd get it. I, like, you'd be, you'd have a good solid feed of pints on a Friday night before Saturday morning training and just get up and run it out of yourself. Yeah. I, that's not happening now. <laughs> just under no circumstances. 20 years on, uh, yeah, no. I, I, I don't know if that's a metabolism thing that you don't burn it off as quick or. I don't know what it is, but hell no, I'm not getting up and doing an hour and a half training session on a Saturday morning after a feed of pints. Just that's not going to happen. Is that something you miss playing a like competitive sport? Yes, I do. Yeah. Let me give out about my wife for a minute, who I love dearly. <laughs> of course. Um, I had a conversation a couple of years ago with someone who's going, and I go, would you ever play? Go back to the guy again. I said, well, look, here's the deal. It's really difficult in my line of work, um, in terms of just a commitment to a team and being there for training and stuff. Um, because you're either on tour or you're working nights with a show or, or whatever. You just you can't say at the start of the year, I will give you 100% for the year. Mm. Uh, so, so it's really tough, but I, I would like to get back and I, I do feel there'll be a comeback at, at some point. And Louise just went, no, you won't. I went, what? She went, you won't. I was like, well, I haven't officially retired. She said, yeah, you have. I said, no, I, I actually haven't, Louise. She goes, well, you have. I said, no, I haven't. She said, yes, you have, because I deregistered you at the start of the year when I was signing up for the membership. I said, well, thank you very much. 
Uh, so yeah, I mean, look, she's she's the real deal. She like has Dublin Senior County A Championship medals and is actually now the coach of Kylan's Camogie team. She's the real deal. Right. But yeah, deregistered me. Wow, that's a that is cold. Oh man, that is really cold. That's like getting neutered. Every, that's exactly what it was, man. <laughs> I was so upset. So I'd have to re-register again. I like I don't know. I, is there one great comeback in me? I don't know. Like I was the worst Gaelic football player of all time. I love it with a passion. Like yeah. it, it was one of my favorite things in the world. But I'm a dreadful footballer. Do you yeah. wanna, would you like to know how shit a footballer I am? Oh please. So I once won Player of the Year, having played an entire season at corner forward, and not scored a single point for the year. <laughs> Now that's quite an achievement. Even if you don't follow Gaelic football, you're going to know that for corner forward to get through an entire season, not scoring a point. Yeah. That's pretty bad. Now, my off the ball work was incredible. My dummy runs are great. Yeah, yeah. My, my contribution to the team. But how did they give you player of the year? It was the Asher God Love Him Award. Like, oh, I, was, I was a really valuable part of the team. For most morale improved kind like, of thing. Not even most improved because yeah. I didn't get any better. I was shit at the start. I was shit at <laughs> yeah. the end. It was just a case of he kind of brightens up the training sessions. Well, it's nice to have him around. Yeah. And, he does, and, and also, if we have like a race night or a fashion show, he'll do the MC and we don't have to pay anybody. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was my contribution to the guy. I have this fantasy. Do you remember that? I'm sure you do that show on home ground. Don't start me off. Oh, go on. Greatest show of all time. Uh, well, you see, it was shot in my hometown. I'm from Dunboyne, County Mead. I'm very sorry for your trouble. Uh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I so I don't. I remember like seeing the. And I, I had no interest in acting at, the, at that point, but I was yeah. big into football. And I remember like the 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 junior team. I think used to work as extras because yeah. they play against the boys, whoever it was. And um, but I have these fantasies of like of, of writing that TV series, <laughs> like the, you know the, the comeback. But I, but I feel like still I could, on home ground yeah yeah <laughs> but I couldn't do it with any like authenticity unless you know I went back into the, the dressing room scenario got back playing some ball you know I'd still I'd still fancy it but um, it absolutely killed me because it essentially it ran for the three years that I was training and I would like literally I was just holding I was going please let me graduate now because as soon as I get out of Trinity I'm going to go straight into on home ground and just work and like here's the thing the idea of going into a soap for 25 years to me is my idea of hell I would hate it I wouldn't do it I would go into home, on home ground for 25 years. And it's funny because I've had a few of the gang on, on the Rise podcast. I've had Frank Laverty was in it, um, Rory Keenan, and also recently Lark Kinlan. Yeah. Um, just to chat about it. Because it was like, it was a ritual in my house. Louise, again, then my girlfriend, now my wife, um, we go back that far. <laughs> uh, we like every Sunday evening, we would go down to the garage in Port Warnock, get a massive bag of pick and mix, bottle of wine, pull the sofa around in front of the fire and watch on home ground religiously. Uh, and then the bastards finished it before I graduated and it is the greatest regret of my life. Oh, sorry, it, it's a joint greatest regret of my life. A, that I never did on home ground and B, that I didn't get to play Aidan Lynch, the captain of the Irish Quidditch team in the fourth Harry Potter movie. Not that I was even in the mix for it. I don't even think he appears in the movie. But when I read the book, I was going, oh my God, there's an actual named character who's the captain of the Quidditch team. I need to get in this gig. Yeah. Didn't happen though. Oh man. What is, what is the story of you and Louise? Because that's come up a couple of times. <laughs> and it just, but it's a met, like, so you've known each other since primary school. Uh, yeah, we do go back that far. So we're, we're together... Oh God, was the other nearly twenty years? Nearly twenty years. Um, yeah, so I married my high school sweetheart. Like she was seventeen and I was eighteen when we got together. Yeah. Um, she was the goalkeeper on my best friend's soccer team, and I would go and support my mate and go, "Who is that goalkeeper with the incredible legs?" <laughs> um, and she kind of hung around in a different gang because she's a nerd, uh, and I was with the cool gang for obvious reasons. Absolutely. Um, that's there's no doubt in anyone's mind about that. Yeah. So and she was just incredibly awesome, and I chased her for years. 
and she wanted nothing to do with me for an awful long time really? because she has very good taste and is a good judge of character. And eventually I just wore her down. It's that like, you know, it's that romantic. Yeah. It was just eventually, yeah, just, just time and persistence. Uh, I think that's frowned upon these days, but at the time it was very acceptable. It was okay. Yeah, it was. There were different times. <laughs> and was she literally like? Were you literally like being like, "Will you go on a date with me?" Will you? We we were at a. I think was it, no, it wasn't Stereophonics. Maybe it was the Verve in the Point. Now the Three Arena, uh, and it was her birthday. And I went up. I was like, "Hey, uh, I believe it's your birthday. I'd, uh, I'd like to buy you a birthday drink." And she went, "No, I don't think you understand. It's uh, it's your birthday, and I'm offering to buy you a birthday drink." And she went, "Nope, I don't want a drink." I was going. I like, do you mean you don't want to drink? Like, that's crazy. I want to get you. Because she goes, look, to be honest, it's not that I don't want to drink. I just don't want to drink from you. Cool. Okay. And I was there with my kid brother. Like, just go and look after your brother. Go, okay, fine. So this went on for a long time, a long, long time. And then eventually we were at a. Oh God, I can't tell. I won't tell him that we're in it now. Um, we were at a birthday, like someone's 18th birthday party, and uh, two friends of ours were hooking up, mm. and she wanted to get the inside track on that gossip. So I was the one who had the inside track on the gossip. So she came to talk to me and we got talking and anyway, one thing led to another. And But a while later I said, you know, what was different about that night? And she went, ah, look, I was drunk. I went, no, I, like I know, but like, there'd be other nights when we'd be out together and we would have had a few drinks and nothing happened. And eventually she went, right, okay, do you want to know the truth? I said, I guess. She said, right, here's the deal. I wanted to get the inside track on that gossip and essentially we'd been talking to each other for so long at that stage, it was just easier than saying no. <laughs> And from that romantic moment led a 20-year relationship with two beautiful kids and a marriage and whatever else. So, uh, yeah, stick with the kids. What I'll say is a bit of, uh, bit of diligence never did anybody any harm. Excellent. <laughs> All right, here we go. Number 30. Do you have it? No, obviously not. <laughs> no worries. Number 30. The question is, what is your worst habit? Oh, what is my worst habit? Probably procrastination. Mm. I am a devil for it. Um, if I'm left to my own devices, I can get very lazy. Right. Which seems weird. Anyone who knows me and knows how hard I work. Yeah, I was going to say I'm surprised. It seems kind of strange to say that I've like a I've a tendency towards laziness, but I do. Um, I do, and I think part of it is about not having a structure. Uh, I I part of me does wish I had a bit more structure in my life. Mm. Um, I'm not an organised dude. Like it's funny now that I'm I'm doing as much kind of producing as I am theatre wise, uh, parallel to the acting and directing stuff because. Like my natural set of attributes are, are are not those of a producer. I mean, spreadsheets and timetables and all that is not my forte. I can do it because I've learned how to do it and discipline myself to do it because I have to do it. Um, but it's but it's not not naturally where I kind of sit comfortably. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I can I can find a lot of reasons to not do the work I need to do. And I, even if I kind of trick myself and make a to do list. I'll put rubbish things on the to-do list that I don't really need to do. And I go, oh, well, I've kind of ticked three of the five off today, knowing there was only two and I really needed to do. Mm. I've done, that's three ticked off. That's me done for three. I'm fine now. And what does it look like? What does procrastination look like? What are the things you're doing instead? It looks like Twitter. Yeah. It looks like Facebook. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, watching wrestling on YouTube. Um, it looks like... Anything like going, I'll go and cook. I'll do, I'll do anything other than just do the job at hand. I'm getting better at it because I have to be. Mm. Um, but that natural spark of get up and go. Actually, honestly, I think it's it's mostly to do with structure and routine, which just in our line of work is difficult to get the best of times. Yeah. Um, but also from my end, because I have the wriggle room with work. 
I've done a huge amount of childcare over the last eight years, mm. uh, and in a way that that's usually a conversation that only happens for women in our business. You go, oh wow, how can you be a mother and work in the business at the same time? Um, well, like those problems don't stop just because I don't have a uterus. Like I, I don't chain my kid to a hamster wheel and walk out the door. And go, sorry, kid, it's time for rehearsals. Have a great day. Yeah. Um, so all that stuff about you know childcare and the costs around that and all that stuff sits on me because Louise, as I said, is a primary school teacher, so she she needs to be there for the set hours. It just is what it is. Obviously, it's great that she's got the holiday she has, um, but the vast majority of it, with help from kind of family, but the vast majority of it has fallen to me over the years because, you know, if I'm programming stuff with Rise, I can choose to work stuff around school times and, and all that. Um, or if it's voiceover stuff, you can go, hey, listen, I can't do half nine. Any chance I can do half two or whatever. There's, there's ways and means around it. Um, but but doing that, having that as a kind of a, a responsibility on me has had an impact. Um, and so it's only just now, this, I guess, last week that um, my youngest is now in creche uh, five days a week and Kyle has gone back to school. So it's now opening up for me to get a bit more structure. So I'm looking forward to trying to structure it a bit more as we go forward now. Do you think your kids are going to end up in the business? Right. So here's the thing. <laughs> Kyla, who is eight, made a show for The Fringe last year. So she did a five-part audio podcast, radio drama thing. Yes, yes. So, uh, and she says she wants to be an actor. Now, like, eight-year-olds also want to be a fire engine. So, you know, you can't, you pinch of salt. Um, but I'm acutely aware that I knew at that stage that what I, what I wanted to do, and that there was never any question in my mind. Um, you know, the idea of her being a fourth-generation actor would be really cool. Mm -hmm. um, but if she goes into primary teaching, she'll be like a seventh or eighth generation primary school teacher. So the strong genes on both sides. Um, I would worry in the way that anyone would worry. It's like, it, it can be a tough business. It's been very good to me, but it's been a it, it can be a tough business for people. And it's particularly tough for women. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would have my concerns. Um, but if it's what she wants to do, and if she's good enough, then yeah, go for it. Emer's just insane. I don't know what her story is. She, she, to be honest, she loves singing and dancing. Mm. Like from the time, like literally from when we got her home from the hospital, the way she physically responds to music is quite remarkable. Uh, it's kind of interesting. And like, that sounds like a weird thing to say about like a newborn, but she's always responded physically. So I don't know if that's going to be a dance end of things. I mean, she might just be an accountant, who knows? Sure, yeah. Yeah. What What would be the, because I suppose, you know, if you have like, um, you know, even me, me, like as a younger actor, you still have friends who kind of, you know, in their early 20s and they're like, yeah, you know, we did the other degree, but I still have that itch. I might go into it and you, you and they're like, well, what's it like? Or you'd be talking about like the pitfalls and the things that are great and things that are tough. As a parent, what would be the main things that like you would be afraid of for like a daughter potentially going into the industry? Um... The insecurity is obviously a thing. Uh, it's it's hard. I, I, well, I'll tell you what, my, my thing with it basically is there's a lot of people out there who love playing soccer. Yeah. And they play five-a-side on a Saturday morning with the lads. And that's enough. If you want to be a professional actor because you love acting, like, if you really love acting, go and join your local amateur group you probably work more than you would, probably perform more than you would otherwise. Yeah. Um, and you still have the benefits of a regular paycheck from whatever job you do, holidays and whatever else. The idea of doing this professionally is a big ask. It's not to be entered into lightly. 
Uh, and so that would be my thing. Like, if just loving being on stage is not enough reason to do this professionally, it's too hard. It's too hard. Too much hard work. Um, so, like, the longer I go, the more I think that being a professional actor is more about what happens off stage than what happens on. Mm-hmm. It's about how you, how you conduct yourself, how you, how you conduct yourself within the industry, but also how you carry yourself as a person to get through any gaps that there might be in working or whatever else. Um, and I guess just like anything, you want your kids to have a, a, an easy life and you want them to be happy. Um, and so that's so I'd be I'd be concerned. But then again, you know, if it turned out she was deadly, then that'd be cool, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'd have a concern about that. Like I've got, fr- man, I'll never forget a very good friend of mine who we grew up with and there's a lot of actors now working professionally who grew up in Port Marnock in the same gang together. Mm. Um, one of whom was the wonderful Gus McDonough who's just finished down in the Everyman mm. doing a McDonough play, strangely enough. Um, but there was another friend of ours who never expressed any interest in the business uh, was going to go to art school and then like after we'd left school and everything went, I'm going to go and train in the gaiety. You're going, okay. And he did his two years and then it was like time for the graduation show. He's like, will you come in and see me? I said, of course I'll come and see you. Like we've been mates for 20 years. Of course we're going to do it. Terrified that I would go and see him do the show and he would be shit. And I'd have to go, yay, you did acting. And I was just so terrified. And then I went to see the show and within about a minute and a half of him walking on stage, I went, ah, I didn't need to worry about Paul Reed. <laughs> you know? okay, yeah. And obviously he's gone on to be Paul Reed. Yeah. Um, but... But I was terrified about that. And I'd be equally scared for the girls if they ever felt that they wanted to go for it. Like, I'm like, just the idea that they might not be good. Because mm. it's a hard enough business when you're deadly. The idea of doing it when you're not, it's just, man, that's a that's a long day at the office. Yeah. How do you think you manage that? Because like, that's a fascinating thing as a parent. Like, as in how honest do you get and <laughs> what stage do you get that way? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's something I'm really awkward about. It's why I'm really glad that I'm with Louise as long as I am. Because the idea of fallen for someone else in the business I couldn't I couldn't handle it if I was going out with someone who wasn't good yeah like who might be a wonderful person and incredibly beautiful and intelligent and smart but just not really all that talented as an actor sure. I couldn't handle it I, I, I couldn't it would be too uncomfortable for me because you'd have to just the lion all the time going, yeah you were deadly and I just you know what I think the business means too much to me uh, and I care too much about it to mm-hmm. I just wouldn't be able so what was the thing then because that was really interesting I think really true about what you said it, it's not enough to just love it so what was the thing that was what, what more did you have then obviously you love it what else do you have that makes you do it Um, I well I've found a way to make it work for me mm-hmm. Um. I make a good living as an actor. I have a pretty good quality of life. I found a way to make it work. Um, and that's a mix. That's, I mean, that involves a lot of hard work. I mean, the idea of me doing 22-hour days, seven days a week is not unusual for me. I've done that and I don't mind doing it. So it does involve a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. But I've found a way to make a very comfortable life for myself where I get to spend time with my kids. Uh, I get to do the shows I want to do, tell the stories I want to tell. Thankfully, audiences want to come and see them and critics say it's good and there's awards and all that stuff and that's all lovely. But I've kind of, I've, I've found a way to make it work and so it actually, it's, it's functioning in, for me as a profession in that, you know, the mortgage is paid every month. Uh, I'm happy with the shows I'm doing. So if it's, if it's working and I'm fulfilled by it, then that for me is success. I mean, would I prefer to be 
Donald Gleeson or Colin Farrell or Robert De Niro? Sure, maybe. Um, but that's the aspirational stuff, the, the actual day-to-day stuff of being able to spend an hour and a half on the green last night with my two-year-old picking blackberries and having the crack mm. while still being able to then go and make the shows I want to make. It's a pretty good balance. Um, my granddad talked about it. And it's bit, like it's that thing of, you know, people say, oh, I couldn't do anything else. It's not that you can't do anything else. I mean, I could go and, I guess, sell insurance in the morning. Um, I'd be fine. I'd be competent. It'd be grand. It's not So it's not that you can't do anything else. It's that you can't not do this. The compulsion for me to do this is so strong. And I think, I, I actually, almost in an unhealthy way, I, I do define myself by being an actor uh, a little bit too much mm. in that that separation of, it's the job that I do, not the human that I am. Mm. I don't have pretty good separation on that. I wish I had better. Mm-hmm. Um, I do I do define myself pretty strongly by that and derive a lot of self-worth and stuff from how successful or otherwise the career is going, which I understand is not healthy, but it's where I am with mm. it. Um, and I think at least at least I'm aware of that, mm-hmm. so I can be kind of cognizant of it. Yes. Um, but, but it works for me. So in the, had there been moments when it hasn't worked for you? And then with that connection, with the way you don't have maybe those boundaries that they say are healthy, then how does that affect, you know, just your, your the way you view yourself, I suppose? Um, has there been time when it hasn't worked? Yeah, there, I mean, there has. But that's been, the, rather than go and wallow in that, that's the kick up the arse that I need to go and make it happen. So that, I mean, that's where Rise came from. Well, sorry, Rise was always going to happen. So my grandparents had their own production company. They were both freelance actors and had their own production company. My parents, both freelance, had their own production company. So I just presumed that what one does is you have your career where you wait for the phone to ring and it's the Abbey and they go, yeah, sure, I'll do that. But parallel to that, you have your own company where you can generate your own work, tell the stories you want to tell, make the work that you want to make. Um, So I was always going to do that. But what I noticed was uh, I started getting obnoxious in rehearsal rooms. I started concerning myself with stuff that had nothing to do with me. I started uh, not really stepping on people's toes, but I realized that the impulse was there to start stepping on people's toes. Mm. I went, okay, this can't happen. We can't let that happen. So I need to find an avenue to channel this energy, Um, which I guess was the start of me looking to direct, basically, Um, which obviously I didn't do in the early days of Rise because I had to just be in the shows because I couldn't afford to pay anybody else to be in them. Um, So so that's where that came from. and so, like I said, so that's if I find myself going, hang on, this isn't working out well, I'll find a way to make it work. Pretty mm. much. And, and what then did the podcast? How did that change <laughs> things? Or like, or like, because I know you know it's it, what you do is really interesting. With the, you do the season pretty much, yeah. which is like a, a fascinating model. It makes a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, how how did that change? Do you feel like that's changed how you're viewed in the industry? Has it opened up things? Has it closed things? What what's the difference between? Yeah, you and I think before? it's been a double edged sword. Uh, I think two things happened. Um, it was a smart thing for me to do at the time. Uh, what happened was, the, so Rise Production starts, the first show we make is Fight Night, which is the first ever year of show in a bag, and it becomes this smash hit really early on. It like tours and plays and plays and sells out and awards and all that stuff. And I went, excellent. Now I'm going to get a quarter of a million a year from the Arts Council to make whatever I want, and I'll just do, it'll all be great. And it turns out that that's not how theatre works. What? I was shocked. Jeez. I was shocked. Uh, and so I went, oh, okay. I need a track record of making brilliant work before the Arts Council will give me money. But I also need Arts Council money to develop a track record of making brilliant work. Yeah. So you're in this total catch-22. So, okay, what can I do that would generate some content anywhere so that we establish 
kind of just rise as an entity. Uh, well, I have friends in the business. I can talk to people. And I've got a laptop here. I can buy a mic for 200 quid and go and do it, which is what I did. And I was smart about it in the early days in that I took people who were popular within the industry and very connected on social media as the first kind of half a dozen guests so that it would, that phrase, go viral as much as possible because I knew these people would share and retweet and get it out there and the word would spread. Yeah. Um, so I was using that, A, to develop this, you know, catalogue of work, but also I was smart enough to know it was an hour-long infomercial for Ango and for Rise going into the target demographic every week for a year um, and in terms of what it opened up I hadn't been in the Abbey in a couple of years when I started that podcast and I think within three months I was back in the door now can you definitively link those two things probably not but you know being out there and being in people's minds does you no harm sure. um, the only thing with it is and again this is where it comes back to the like this because I wasn't really aware of this this persona of Ango that's out there somewhere mm. Um, like so, the reason I killed it after fifty-two episodes first time around was I did not want to risk being known as Ango the podcast or Ango the interviewer. Yeah. Um, particularly given the fact that that's the road my dad went down as kind of TV presenter and stuff. Mm. Um, and that's while that's brilliant, uh, it's not what I want to do. So I went, okay, well, we'll kill it at fifty-two. We'll make it a time capsule, uh, snapshot, a year in the life of Irish theatre. We do fifty-two and we walk. Um. And so now bringing it back this time around, which I guess, we, did I bring it, I brought it back like five years to the day from when it finished, so I guess six years from when we started. Mm. And that was an interesting five or six years in Irish theatre. You know, if you think from where we were in 2011, I think 2011 was the year of the big cuts when all the companies went to the wall. Okay. So the landscape was fundamentally different. Uh, and so if you think about what came in in that intervening five or six years, the kind of the Kate Gilmore generation of, like whereas when I left Trinity, uh, in 2002, there were all these regional companies who were all touring all the time. There was work everywhere. The Peacock was running at full tilt and all that. So there was a huge amount of work that you'd go and audition for, and basically work fell into your lap. Mm. Jump ahead 10 years, uh, the Gilmores, the intoners of the world are coming out, and they're going, ooh, hang on a second. Like, most of the companies who used to make that work are now gone. Yeah. Either I make the work for myself, or the work doesn't happen. Um And so there was a big shift in that time. So now what's been interesting for me coming back now, five years on, is just kind of getting a sense of where the industry is. It's funny, I was talking to, excuse me, while I clang and name drop, talking to uh, Marco Rowe recently uh, about bringing back the podcast for Series 2. And mm. he said, uh, I was saying, like, I'm getting all new people. He says, don't get new people. Come back and do the 52 you did last time to see what's happened in the intervening five or six years, which is an intriguing prospect. It would have been tricky to do, A, because one of the guests was my granny who's now dead. That would have been a difficult one. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I understand the point Mark was making. Um, actually, I wouldn't mind doing a sit down with him to check in with him five years on. Oh yeah, Tony. Um, Big time. But, but you know, but just it was that thing of going. No, I'm doing it again. I'm doing the fifty two. It's going to be another snapshot to say again where theatre is now and who's doing it. So yeah, I, in terms of what it's opened, I do think it led to more work. Um, but I do still have concerns that I don't want to be associated too much with that end of it. Like I, I still want people to think of me as Angle the actor and director and producer as well as kind of the interviewee podcast guy. Yeah, 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 Tony, I get it. I get yeah, it. I yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give it a spin. Okay. Here we go. Number 17. Do you have Why it? do you hate me? I don't understand why you hate me. It's the bingo machine, man. <laughs> Number 17. The don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah, yeah, completely. Uh, that's the tagline. Uh, <laughs> what's the greatest lesson you've learned about acting? Oh. Ah, yes. I'll tell you exactly what the greatest lesson I learned about acting was. 
Um, excuse me while I clang another name drop. When I was in New York training with Ann Bogart and the City Company, yes. uh, I, did a, I did a summer offer with them in between my second and third year in Trinity. And um, I was having a tough time. I found, I found drama school really tough. Okay. Very, very hard. Because um, don't forget, I went in, because I started working at 15, so I had done quite a bit. And I walked through the doors uh, as the greatest actor of all time. Okay. Um, and uh, it turns out that that wasn't the case. And that was a very difficult pill for me to swallow. Mm -hmm. And if you think, like the room I walked into, of the 11 of us um, in that room was award-winning actress Judith Roddy, who's currently, you know, blowing things up in London on the national stage. Uh, Lisa Lamb, who people may have heard of. Um, me. Uh, a little known actor that you've had on the show before called Aaron Monaghan mm. uh, and Oscar nominee Ruth Nega. So it wasn't a bad class to be training with. Um, but like I, I kind of couldn't handle the fact that I wasn't the best in the world. And it really threw me. Uh, and so I found it tough. And those that kind of that first two years particularly tough. Um, tr like struggling to find who I was because if I wasn't the greatest actor in the world anymore then who the fuck was I? Like I said, I've never, I've always had kind of an unhealthy connection between the professional and the personal. Mm. Um, so I go to New York to train for the summer. It was ridiculous, really uh, punishing and physical, but brilliant. Um, like 60 people from all over the world coming to upstate New York to live together and train together for a month in this um, Suzuki method and, and viewpoints and stuff. And... We got to, you know, try stuff out. And I like that's where I started a little bit, of, like the earliest stuff of me directing and stuff. And I found it really useful. Um, but at the end of the month, the the company were there because they're all on site with you doing the training. Right. Uh, and so they did a little excerpt from one of their shows which talked about audiences and audiences' response to work and essentially why we do what we do. And it was the first time in my life that the switch went and I had a huge amount of guilt about why I wanted to be an actor because I felt at the time that I was doing it for really selfish and ego reasons. Um, that I was doing it because I loved the applause, I loved the response, I liked being up on stage in the centre of attention. And that didn't sit comfortably with me at all because I didn't feel that that's who I was, but I, but I was faced with incontrovertible evidence that that is who I was. Mm. And that those two things didn't gel and I felt really... Um, uh, it, I, I, how do you describe that it, Like, it's really weird to go that's not who I am but clearly it is who I am mm -hmm. uh, and to have that contradiction going inside is a very un uncomfortable place to be now also I was 20 so you're trying to find yourself in the world anyway um, but I was really uncomfortable with that and then this excerpt from the show happened and they talked about audiences responses and it clicked instantly that what I do in terms of telling the stories I tell the performances I make and all that it's not about me at all it's exclusively about the audience, first, foremost, and only. It's all about them. It's all about their experience. And I wept. It broke me open. And I kind of famously, uh, to me, at the time, <laughs> I didn't cry ever. Didn't cry at anything. Wouldn't cry at funerals. Didn't cry at sad stuff. Like, just didn't happen. I Not that I was some big macho dude who didn't cry. I just didn't cry. Yeah. And there I was sitting in this theatre and I broke open, like howling, sobbing, like shuddering with these sobs uh, and cried my eyes out uh, because it was a, like a real epiphany. Um, and I went, that's what it's about. And it fundamentally shattered open my approach to the business and my approach to making work. And it dictates 
everything that I do with Rise. The primacy of the audience is key. And it's really useful because it does mean you check your ego. Uh, it means, do you know what, I honestly think, I honestly think I'd probably be a bigger actor, a bigger star if I had more of that ego. But I don't. It's always about serving the show. So there's things in it where a slightly more selfish actor will step forward and take the spotlight at certain points. I'm always concerned about the overall show. And I guess, that's, again, that's part of the director in me too. So I'll, where there is an opportunity for me to show off and take the limelight, I won't always do it. If I feel it's better for the show for me to step back mm. and let someone else drive the bus for a bit, I do. Which I guess, I mean, that's kind of what I like in other people that I play opposite and people that I cast in Rise shows. Um, I want a team player. Maybe it doesn't make you a star, but I think it makes you a better human. Mm. And I also think it makes you a better actor. Mm. That's but that, But fundamentally that, that it's about the audience, it's not about you was such a revelation to me because it because then what it did was it made me go ah actually it's not a selfish thing that's traveling in towards me it's a generous thing that's traveling out towards them and just that shift in mindset given that i was in such a difficult place acting wise it was really like a revelation because they'd said to me we had like these regular tutorials um in trinity and they brought me in maybe at the end of first year and said like you are as wrong as you could possibly be like you could not be any wronger than you are right now i was going cool um that's good uh i was like but you think i'll get this? but and, and they said but like you could walk out the door now and you would work and work consistently and, just, and i did this weird cryptic thing where they kind of turned to each other and i think we all know which actor we're thinking of like, oh yes indeed and they kind of like referenced it with some kind of big bbc drama guy mm. i was going hang on i'm having a terrible time here and you're telling me if i walk out now i could be a big star in the bbc this is a dangerous message to be sending yeah. and they went and, and they went but we don't think you'd be satisfied with that I went, okay, now I'm listening. I went, okay, like, just, you you got to stick with this. Like, you are really wrong, but you're going to get there if you keep putting the work in. Um, which is tough to hear, again, as the greatest actor of all time. It's <laughs> difficult to be told that you're not. Yeah. But I do think that going through that process uh, made me a much better actor. So that's fascinating. I, and I hear what you're saying about that that actor. Who, if you didn't, ha if you had more of that ego, that would yeah. be like, okay, I'll step up here or whatever. What's fascinating is, like, through, I, I, I mean, through the, the couple of years that I've been out working and then through doing these podcasts, you're just meeting people around the place. The best actors, to me, generally, have seemed like the nicest people. Yeah. You know they said they have that thing, like, don't meet your heroes and all that, and I get that. That's not been my experience, because yeah. you meet someone, I mean, for example, you mentioned him earlier as an incredible actor. You meet someone like Aaron, and yeah. you're like, holy shit, like, he's a gentleman, even someone like, I mean, Claire, just because she's a yeah. Aaron. Like, you meet these people, Kate's been, like, on, um, you know, immediate, all these, uh, look, look, you could go on for we years. They've checked the entire list of everyone's been on, they're yeah. Ge they're genuinely, and, I'm, and I mean this, I, and it, this isn't me, like, trying to present, oh, they did my podcast, I owe them a shout. <laughs> like, they're fucking nice people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you're a nice person. Like, the people who work generally, to me, I'm, I know there are assholes out there, of course there are in anything, but, like, the, the vast majority are, are nice, people's, and, uh, nice people and it's really interesting because you kind of you, you, and it makes you really sad then when you do hear those stories of someone who is a dick and you're like well you, you just kind of you're kind of ruining it for, for the rest of yeah. it you know what I mean yeah that, look, do you know what I honestly think it's, it's too small an industry and it's too tough a gig to surround yourself with dicks like, I just like life is too short man um, you know it's making shows is hard uh, it's a labour of love a lot of the time um, long hours you put your heart into it but I, so just so much of the the work and the stress and the hassle and the disappointment and everything to throw that in to surround yourself with people who aren't fun to be around at the same time like just life's too short you can't do it and have you had that have you had that experience of being like 
that because it's you know I feel like I've had it even in my years but you have that thing of this isn't going to be easy but I think for my like health for my enjoyment I think I just need to detach have you had that over the years do you think from I've, uh, not, I've been, not even necessarily in the industry just in and how do you deal with it I suppose I've been lucky enough not to have not to have had to put up with too many dickheads mm-hmm. um, and also now at this stage I'm around long enough that I can see it coming and I'm pretty good at handling it there was one show I worked on a while ago and uh, again told me like taking the spotlight and driving the bus sure. like I'm a big fan of when it's your time to take the ball and run with it absolutely run with it that's what the show dictates that's what we're doing go for it like take your moment but equally, when the spotlight's not on you, give 100% to the guy who it is. Like, you know, that's not, you know, people do get caught up in that going, oh, but I, if I give him too much, uh, like, I'll look weaker. No, you won't. The show will be better. You will look better in a better show if you, like, properly put the focus where it needs to be when it needs to be there. Yeah. But there was one dude, a senior actor to me, who any, and the, the show that we were doing, the, his character had significantly more status than I did. So when I was kind of showing him the respect and the reverence that his character with the status reser- deserved, He'd come up up to me after the scene and go, "That was really good work today. Well done, fantastic. That's really, I feel that's really jelly." And then anytime I would take the ball and run with it, when the when the show dictated that it was my turn, I'd go, "Yeah, it's just not clicking. I don't. There's something up with that. I don't. I don't just. I don't know what's wrong with it. But just the scene's just not working." And again, I'm big enough and ugly enough. I just go, "Yeah, sure. We'll run that by the director. See how that goes." You know, I mean, like I'm just not going to put up a bullshit like that. And again, again, because I know it's not coming from a place of ego. It's coming from a place of how do we make this show be the best it can be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 well able to handle myself at this stage. Yeah, I love it. All right, let's give it a spin. Okay, here we go. Number forty-two. Do you have it? Forty-four. We've been We've in the forties. Yeah. <laughs> Number forty-two. The question is: If there was one thing you could change about Ireland, what would it be? Oh, um, I guess everyone says the weather. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I might do? I, I might go on a time machine and uh, and get us back speaking Irish. That's what I might do. Mm. I'd be into that. I love that. Uh, I so I'm I'm relatively oh, sorry. I was relatively fluent. I think I'd be very rusty now, but I get to work through Irish quite a bit. Mm. And that whole thing, the concept of. Tear gone Changa, tear gone Anam. I, I think it. I think there's actually something to that, mm. um, and I just think there's there are there are thoughts and feelings that I can have in Irish. Not that I was I was I was raised through Irish or anything. I just spent five or six summers down in the kind of Margaret kissing girls, yeah. and it was quite a formative time <laughs> in my life. Um, so I do. I love the language, um, but there are thoughts and feelings that I have that I can articulate in Irish that don't. I can't articulate in English really. Um, and I saw a thing recently actually talking about um, about mental health and why Irish people actually kind of, sorry, Gwailgori basically have a different take on it in that in English it's I am sad. So that's defining who you are. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Irish it's Tob Brown Urim. So yeah. there is a sadness upon, upon me. me. yeah. So you can take that off. Like that's a cloak that's on you. Cool, okay. Take the cloak off and you're still you. Uh, and I love that as kind of as a, as a distinction. Um, uh, yeah, I like the idea. I mean, obviously it is useful that we all have English sure. and that we're soon to be the only English speaking country in the EU um, I think that's useful for us like from industry wise and whatever else mm. um, but yeah I do like the idea I would love the idea that we could all speak Irish as well I love it as a language it's gorgeous yeah I was even I was doing some travelling um, during the summer uh, just recently I just got back last week and I mean it was amazing uh, 
because you know the way when you go abroad, everyone calls it Gaelic, yeah. which is fine. But it, it it was really lovely to be able to because people were like, you know, do you speak it? And like you, I would have had good Irish in school, and I definitely let it slip. And I haven't. I, I'm probably not even at a level where I could work at it. You know, work you know on a, a gig in it. I, I definitely need to do some brushing up. Yeah. But anyway, it was lovely when you do have those things like there's a sadness upon me or like Cade Mila Falchero. Yeah. Like they're just really beautiful ways of saying yeah. really simple things. Yeah. You know, it's gorgeous the way it can. Yeah, I I love it, and I'm I'm lucky enough that I've been able to work through it quite a bit. Uh, I'd like to do more I think at some point down the line I'd like to do an Irish language show with Rise mm. um, the problem is that up until now with very very few exceptions all the Rise stuff has been essentially produced on a commercial basis mm. rather than funded and there simply isn't really a sufficient audience there for me to risk what it would take financially to do an Irish language show so it'd be one that I would need funding for Um but I'd be into it. Yeah. And you'd have to think that's the kind of thing that people are looking to for. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, because look, it is tricky. It's niche. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, all of this stuff is niche. But, like, you know, you've got new writing in Irish. That's that's a small <laughs> yeah, demographic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess, I don't know, just put someone famous in that you'd be grand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, we've got time for one more. Let's okay. Okay. It. We better get number 44. <laughs> if you don't. Oh, it's number 24. I hate you. I hate you. I've always hated you. <laughs> it's number 24. The question is... Oh, that's kind of nice way to end. What is your definition of success for yourself? Ah. Uh, this. Doing it. Honestly, it is. And that's changed over the years. Um, it didn't used to be that. I Like, I used to be... I used to be mad keen to win an Oscar. Mm. Um, because in my naivety, I genuinely felt that if you won the best actor Oscar it meant you were the best actor right uh, or that at least that year you had given the best performance which is so patently stupid like so wonderfully naive um, that it's kind of cute uh, to look back on it um, but I just I don't I have redefined what success is now here's the thing right there's plenty of pals of mine that I would have come up with who are now making big waves internationally for whom you know, Oscars are in the. Look at someone like Ruthie. Yeah. Um. You know, Oscars are a reality for her. I'm sure if they were that close to being a reality for me, I might put a bit more weight on them. Um. But I've always been really skeptical about awards, quite publicly skeptical about awards, which is an interesting standpoint. But I've been equally skeptical whether I've been not nominated, nominated and lost, or nominated and won. I've also been equally sceptical when I've hosted two years of the Irish Times Awards. Okay. Standing up on that stage in front of the entire theatre industry going, yeah, theatre awards, meh, um, which is a brave stance. Um, I just, I don't, I don't think it's an accurate uh, benchmark or yardstick for what we do. I think it's it's weird. And I say that as someone who's about to go and judge the Fringe Awards this year. Sure. Um, I, like, I'm, I'm quite sceptical and cynical about them. However, I do understand the power they have. Like, when we won... We won Best New Play at the Irish Times Awards for games people play. Mm. The phone rang the next morning from Norway or Sweden or somewhere looking for translating rights and stuff like that. So it does open up stuff for mm. people. And without question, we, so for Fight Night, again, our very first show, we won, so we won the Beauty's Little Gem Award at the Fringe and also I won Best Actor. Um, and that announced rise on the scene. So you can't take away from that stuff. But equally, like... It's only an award, like it, it. It helps in as much as it helps, but it, it's not. It's not real, to be honest with you. Um, and so, in terms of linking that back to success, I do think for me, success is. I have a nice house right on the beach. 
I've got two amazing girls. I've got a wife who still talks to me occasionally. <laughs> um, and I get to do big shiny shows in the Abbey. I get to do a day on a movie here, a radio play there, a voiceover here. And I then get to tell the stories I want to tell through Rise. Um, I, and stories that I'm really passionate about, shows that I really care about. Um, oftentimes, like from the idea hitting my head to it appearing on stage, it might be as long as five years for a Rise show. So these are things I care deeply about. And like I said, I'm often working 22-hour days to make them happen. So I'm really invested in them. And I get to get them out there in front of an audience and people seem to like them and it goes well. And so that that's success, just doing it. Just like the luxury of getting to do it. Because here's the thing, you know, when I was a kid, as I made my way to Liverpool, Liverpool Football Club, not just the city. Ah. <laughs> to, so he, and he went and he played um, and did incredibly well over there. And, you know, knocking Ajax out of European Cups and scoring winner penalties and all this stuff. And then uh, didn't make it into the the full team, the first team, and rather than drop down through the, through the divisions, came home, packed it all in. That's fine. That's his choice. It's cool. But that thing of, in the way that everyone's a teenager and wants to go and be a soccer star or whatever, when I was a teenager, all I wanted to do was be an actor. And I get to do it. I'm literally living the dream. This is my childhood dream. It's all I ever wanted to do from the time I was no age. All I wanted to do was be an actor. And I am. Mm. The achievement in that is success. Literally just doing it. And the more I go through the business, the more I hear other people say that same thing too. That I don't, because I don't think moderating your expectations or your targets or your ambitions is a sign of defeat. I don't think it's going, oh, well, you're only just saying that because, you know, it's, it's easy to say you don't want an Oscar when there's no chance of you winning an Oscar. Um, but I genuinely, it's not about the bells and whistles. For me, it's about getting up there and doing it. And essentially telling those stories, making those shows for people. It, as long as I can keep making those experiences for audiences, again, always comes back to the audience. If I can keep giving those audiences those nights out um, and I can pay the bills while I'm doing it, that's, that's fine by me. I love it, man. It's great. Engo, thanks so much for doing it. Would you do me a favour? Um, it's a nice way to finish. Would you tell me a little bit about Rise, about anything you're coming up, another Fringe Awards, all that good stuff, just... Do your thing. Yeah, oh, well, you'll find us at riseproductions.ie. Um, we are, we've just finished a ten and a half month tour of The Good Father yeah. by Christian O'Reilly. So Thank great. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that kind of, because that ran for like a good six months longer than we expected it to, the plans are kind of back by about six months, but we've, we've now just become the theatre company in residence at Smock Alley. So we've got a big programme coming up for next year. Kicking that off will be Gary Duggan's new play. Not Gary Duggan's fringe play, but Gary Duggan's new, new play. He's prolific. For, uh, he's, a, he's a busy boy, um, which we're going to produce at Smock and at a couple of other venues uh, early next year. Um, and then we have another couple of shows through next year that we'll announce in due course. Um, but yeah, at Rise Ireland on Twitter, Facebook and all that, you'll find us in places. Brilliant. Angus Oak-McAnally, thanks so much for playing personality bingo. Thank you. See you. So guys, that was a brilliant Angus Og McAnally playing personality bingo with Tom Moran. Angus, on the off chance you're listening, I doubt you are, you're a busy man, but if you are, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and chat to me. Um, Angus is a gentleman and he's so busy with his own podcast and Rise and all the things that we talk about on this show. So, uh, you know, it was an absolute privilege um, to get to sit down with the gentleman that is Angus for... Uh, an hour or so. Uh, yeah, as I said, in other news, uh, loads going on um, behind the scenes here. We're going to have the podcast flying out to you, uh, as always. Um, have a meeting tonight, actually, as you're listening to this, which is on uh, the Wednesday. What is it, Wednesday? The the, 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 the the 5th of September. We have a really exciting meeting um, 
with head stuff all the podcasters are meeting together which is very rare so I'm excited about that um, some exciting things happening here so I'll be sure to keep you in the loop about what goes on uh, at this uh, lovely meeting in the Workman's Club tonight um, so yeah interested to see um, what changes on the horizon um, all positive I'm sure and uh, as always we'll have a podcast coming to you every single week as always a massive thank you to the boss woman Erin Lindsay for mixing editing and producing the podcast a huge thank you to the brilliant Leah Moore and Anthony Manley for the absolutely gorgeous team music and as always to Connor Nolan for the beautiful artwork and last but not least a huge thank you to Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary um, for keeping the ship running here at Headstuff uh, and being such gracious hosts it's uh, such a lovely podcast network to be a part of and I am very grateful to the boys um, and you know last uh, and unleashed I suppose is ye ye rascals uh, thank you so much uh, for listening and um, we do this show for ye and uh, I am delighted that ye keep tuning in in your numbers I, I saw a lovely tweet actually um, recently that was kind of just saying how podcasts live and die by the way they are spread around the place so if you are someone who does enjoy this podcast you know any little thing you can do to, to spread the word would really help. We do not have any budget. I have never made a cent, in fact, quite the opposite from doing this podcast. So anything you can do just to spread it to people because, look, when you're doing something for free, the reason you're doing it, as Angus spoke about, you're doing it for the audiences. So I would love if you were able to spread this to whatever audience you might have, whether that's just your ma, whether that's your mate on the train, whatever it is, like um, whether it's just putting out a tweet, a retweet on Facebook, whatever it is, a little share. But our word amount is just as effective. So anything like that, look, lads, it makes a huge difference to us and um, ye are the reason that uh, we do this thing so a massive thank you to you for tuning in as always and hopefully um, spread the good word uh, as the Lord himself said lads see you next week for another episode of Personality Bingo with Tom Moore.